Well, good morning once again, Snowden Baptist Church. We want to spend time praying uh, before we launch again into the story of Abraham. So I'd ask you to bow your head and your hearts and your minds before the Lord, before his throne with me. Father, we are a thankful people this morning, thankful for so many things. Thankful that you have gathered us once again in this building, in this public place to worship you together corporately. Thank you that we have the freedom to assemble as we have this morning. Lord, we are thankful for the provision that you continually give to us, whether it's food on our table or a few dollars in our bank account or a car or whatever it may be. Thank you for those things. Lord, we thank you that even in times in our lives when uh, we are working through perhaps relational difficulty, you are yet on the scene guiding and teaching and showing us more of your glory. Lord, thank you that you have promised to never leave us or forsake us no matter what happens in this life to us. You are with us 24-7, 365. We praise you and give you adoration and thanks for that. Lord, we thank you most of all this morning for your son, Jesus Christ, for uh, his eternity, for the fact that he was incarnated into flesh to come amongst us in our world and teach us and show us God and die for us as the atoning sacrifice for our sin to then be raised and ascended and we have the promise that he is coming again Lord we thank you for Jesus this morning we pray now Lord that as we open your word again to this ancient passage in Genesis 21 that you would attend your word that your spirit would be amongst us and in our midst Lord, encourage our hearts and minds by your word this morning is my prayer. And may we leave this place changed because we have been with you. We pray these things in the mighty and in the powerful name of Jesus our Lord. Amen. Amen. Well, friends, this morning we are parachuting back into the story of Abraham after a brief one-week hiatus. And I want to give... Thanks to Charles uh, for bringing the word last week in my absence. I've heard very good things about how God uh, blessed your time in his word last week. So thank you, Charles, for standing in. Uh, Today we are at Genesis 21. And Genesis 21 is really a chapter that contains three stories. There is first the story of Isaac's long-awaited birth. And then secondly, we have the story of Hagar and Ishmael being sent away. And then third in this chapter, we have the story of Abraham and Abimelech making a covenant. So three stories in a single chapter. And the question that we will seek to address this morning is is simply, is there any relationship or interconnection between these three stories of Genesis 21, and what might be the overall message that this chapter is trying to teach us? What do we learn from Genesis 21, this chapter of God's holy word? So I hope you have your Bible open. The first of the three stories of Genesis 21 is found in verses 1 through 7. 
Now, as a little warm-up to this first story, let's just pause for a moment to remember here that 25 years had passed since Abraham left Haran in obedience to the command of God way back in Genesis 12. 25 years. Over that quarter century, Abraham and Sarah had had their ups and downs in the faith department, hadn't they? The promised son had been slow in arriving, and as we've seen over past Sundays, Abraham and Sarah had not always been models of faithful waiting, models of faithful commitment. In fact, they had tried, hadn't they, to take matters into their own hands, and they had ended up producing a son outside the parameters that God had set for them. What I want us to watch here in this first story is God's faithful covenant commitment to his word. Verses 1 and 2 are chock full of God. And they overflow, these verses do, with indications of God's covenant commitment. The initial part of verse 1 says this, The Lord visited Sarah as he had said. Now the verb here, visited, is a favorite verb of the Hebrew writers when they want to describe God intervening in a person's life, either for blessing or for curse. When God visits somebody, it means that God takes action to change that person's circumstances, either for better or for worse. Here in 21.1, God visited Sarah with blessing, as he had said. God showed up and he changed Sarah's situation for the better, as God said he'd do. And the second part of verse 1 says that the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. Yes, in earlier times, God, God had voiced the promise of a son to Abraham and Sarah. Now God was making good on his promise. He was fulfilling his promise. Verse 2. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age, at the time of which God had spoken to him. So after all the tension and the waiting and the missteps and the high points and the low points, a son is born at last to Abraham and Sarah. Wow. Again, the text of these first two verses simply goes out of its way to make sure that we know that God has done this. Amen? God had said and had spoken and had promised this son, and God had visited Sarah's womb, and God had created this son, and now the son was born. Friends, I want you to see here that God is faithful to his promises. God is faithful to his covenant. Even when God's promises seem impossible, even when God's promises seem odd to human ears and to human perception, God brings those promises to pass. And time and time again, people's jaws drop at how astounding God is. 
Well, if verses 1 and 2 are verses that trumpet the covenant commitment of God, then verses 3 and 4 show us the covenant commitment of Abraham. Verse 3, Abraham has learned some things. Verse 3, Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Yitzhak, Isaac. And again, the name Yitzhak, Isaac, means he laughs. God has now had the last laugh, hasn't he? By giving this newborn son, Isaac, to this really old couple who had both laughed rather cynically at the prospect of having a son in their old age. Notice here the covenant commitment of Abraham. God had commanded Abraham to name this child Isaac back in 1719. Now Abraham follows through in covenant obedience. He names the child Isaac, just as God had commanded him to do. And then verse 4. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. So Abraham continues here to follow through on his covenant commitments. Back in 1710 and 1712, God had commanded circumcision. For every male, for every eight-day-old male infant, and Abraham simply follows through on that command here. He circumcises Isaac at eight days old in covenant commitment. And then we get verse 5, which I think is meant to make us laugh a little. Now, to get the joke, we have to go back to 1717, where Abraham had asked, laughingly he had asked, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? And now here in our chapter, in verse 5, it says, Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. So apparently God's answer to Abraham's laughing question back in 1717 is a firm yes. Yes, a child is born to this man, Abraham, who is a century old. And then verses 6 and 7, more laughter. There's a lot of laughter in this text. Sarah said, God has made tzahak for me. He has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will tzahak, will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. So verses 1 through 7 are celebratory verses. This first story of the three in Genesis 21 is a story that is full of laughter. The name Isaac means he laughs, and at his birth Sarah exclaims that God has made laughter. So these verses joyfully celebrate how God came through on his impossible promises after a 25-year wait. This first story of Genesis 21 is about God coming through on God's covenant commitment. And then we get the second story of Genesis 21 in verses 8 through 21. The second story begins by telling us of little Isaac's growth and how he was weaned. 
Now, in this ancient culture, the infant mortality rate was quite high. And so children were not typically weaned from their mother's milk until they were about three years of age. To celebrate the fact that Isaac survived those initial three years, Abraham throws a feast. Verse 9. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, sahawking, laughing. Now I want you to take note of something important in verse 9, which then continues all the way down through the rest of the second story, which ends at verse 21. And that something important is the fact that the name Ishmael does not occur even once. Even though the person Ishmael is really the main character in this second story. Here in verse 9, for example, the narrator of Genesis calls Ishmael the son of Hagar. In verses 10 and 11, Ishmael will be called her son, the son, his son. In verse 12, God calls Ishmael the boy. And on and on it goes throughout the remainder of this second story. The name Ishmael does not occur even once, even though the story centers on him. Why is this? I think the simple answer is that Isaac is on the scene now. Isaac is the promised child. Isaac is the promised heir of Abraham. The covenant continues through Isaac, not through Ishmael. In fact, what we notice is that the name Isaac occurs all over the place in verses 3 through 12 of this chapter, six times in fact. The idea seems to be this. The reason that Abraham's firstborn Ishmael is not named anywhere here is because he has lost status in Abraham's home because of the birth of Isaac. Now returning to verse 9 again. So the context here is we're at the feast that Abraham has prepared in celebration of Isaac being weaned at about three years, eight, three years of age. There's buckets of ancient Near Eastern KFC on the table. People are having a great time. And at that dinner party, Sarah sees something. Notice this. She sees Ishmael. And we should note here that Ishmael at this point is about 16 years of age. Sarah sees Ishmael, the firstborn of Abraham, sahawking, laughing. Again, the name Isaac, just to remind you, is derived from the Hebrew root sahak, laughter. And now Ishmael is sahawking, laughing. There is a debate here as to how to interpret this. What exactly was Ishmael doing here? Some English translations of the Bible, instead of the word laughing at the end of verse 9, will have something like mocking or making sport or making fun. 
Was Ishmael making fun of Isaac? I think perhaps we're pointed in the right direction when we read the Apostle Paul's interpretation of what Ishmael was doing over in Galatians 4.29, where Paul says that the teenage Ishmael was persecuting little Isaac. Whatever the case, whatever the precise behavior was that Ishmael displayed here, this much seems very clear. Ishmael's laugh in verse 9 seems very different. Listen, it seems very different, this laugh, from the faith-filled laughter that Sarah had been talking about in verse 6. Ishmael's laughter here in verse 9 seems derisive, and it seems to be the laughter of ridicule. I like Ian Duguid's summary of this. He says, Ishmael's laughter was the laugh of unbelief, not the laugh of faith. He says, He was not laughing with Sarah, but at Sarah. He was mocking Isaac and with Isaac, God and God's promise. We might point out here that Ishmael sort of takes after his mother. His mother Hagar had looked with contempt on Sarah back at 16.4. Now Hagar's son Ishmael is laughing in contempt at Isaac and Sarah. The prophecy about Ishmael back at 16.12 had stated that Ishmael's hand would be against everyone. Maybe our verse 21.9 is the initial stage of that prophecy now coming true. Ishmael seems to be mocking Isaac, and in mocking Isaac, he is mocking God and mocking God's promise. Well, in verse 10, we have Sarah's rather caustic response to the mocking laughter of Ishmael. Sarah now says to Abraham, she uses a strong verb at the beginning of this little speech, she says, cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son, Isaac. Wow, Sarah. Sarah's relationship with Hagar had always been a rocky relationship, hadn't it? Now Sarah doesn't even dignify Hagar with a name. Notice that. She just calls Hagar this slave woman. And Sarah wants this slave woman to be driven away along with Hagar's mocking son, Ishmael. Now, I need to pause here, friends. I need to pause here to ask you this question just for a moment. Can you see the complications that sin brings as we read these verses? Recall that it was Sarah in the first place who had concocted that godless plan to get Abraham a son by Hagar. Now it was all catching up to Sarah. The rotten fruit of Sarah's godless plan was now this difficult situation with Ishmael. You know, when you go your own way in defiance of God, it can often get complicated and it can get rather ugly. 
as it has now for Sarah and for Abraham. What Sarah wants now is for Abraham to send Hagar and Ishmael away, and thereby Hagar and Ishmael would forfeit any share they may have had in Abraham's estate. Verse 11. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. After all, Ishmael was Abraham's son. And Abraham loved Ishmael, his son. Abraham experiences some tangible anguish here as he considers what Sarah has asked him to do. So Abraham is fretting, displeased. He's in anguish. Verses 12 and 13. Enter God. God shows up now in Abraham's distress. God likes to do that with us, doesn't he? Shows up in Abraham's distress and God speaks to Abraham a word. He says, I'll just read the verse. But God said to Abraham, Be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. Now isn't this interesting, friends? God affirms Sarah's basic position here, doesn't he? Hagar and Ishmael need to go. God affirms that basic position of Sarah, although I wouldn't say that God endorses the harshness that Sarah displayed in verse 10. Sarah was pretty severe in her manner, and I don't think that God approved of that severity. But what God does for Abraham here is he gives Abraham some assurance, notice, as Abraham will send Hagar and Ishmael away now, God promises Abraham that a nation will arise from Ishmael. Now what I want us to notice in the next verses of the story, and I want you to track with me here, what I want us to notice in the next verses of the story, in verses 14 through 19, is something very important. Something that I'm convinced is quite purposeful in the text of Scripture as it's been given to us. And that is this, that as Abraham sends Hagar and Ishmael away now, the description of it is meant to purposely mirror the story in the very next chapter of Genesis. When Abraham will obey God in the matter of sacrificing Isaac. So in Genesis 21, we have Abraham obeying God concerning Abraham's eldest son, Ishmael. And in Genesis 22, the next chapter, we have Abraham obeying God concerning his younger son, Isaac. And the two stories are meant to sound very, sim very similar to one another. I think part of the point of this is to show us that Abraham, in both of these chapters, Abraham, with both of his sons, is modeling obedience to God. Abraham is modeling covenant commitment to God, even when it's really hard to do so. 
Watch this. So God has just spoken to Abraham in verses 12 and 13 of our chapter. God has just given Abraham instructions concerning Ishmael. Just as in the next chapter, in Genesis 22, verses 1 and 2, God will speak to Abraham and give him instructions concerning Isaac. In verse 14 of our chapter, Abraham does what? Rises early in the morning, and without speaking any words, Abraham makes provision for the journey that Hagar and Ishmael will now undertake. Abraham takes bread, and he takes a skin of water. So Isaac gets a feast, right? Ishmael gets bread and a skin of water. He takes bread and a skin of water, which would be about 15 or 16 liters of water. He gives it to Hagar, and Abraham sends Hagar and Ishmael on their way. Just as in the next chapter of Genesis, in Genesis 22.3, Abraham will... Rise early in the morning, and without speaking any words, Abraham will make provision for the journey that he and Isaac will undertake. He will prepare his donkey, and he will cut some wood. In our chapter this morning, once Hagar and Ishmael wander out into the wilderness, Ishmael, Abraham's eldest son, becomes endangered. Verses 15 and 16. When the water in the skin was gone, Hagar put the child, who we said before was a teenager, put the child under one of the bushes. Ishmael is obviously now dying of thirst. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bow shot, for she said, Let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. Ishmael is endangered. Well, in the next chapter of Genesis, once Abraham and Isaac are out in the wilderness, Isaac, Abraham's son, will become endangered also. Isaac will be laid on the altar, and Abraham will prepare to slaughter his son. And then what happens in both of the chapters, in both Genesis 21 and again in Genesis 22, divine intervention happens on behalf of each son. So in our chapter, in Genesis 21, verses 17 and 18, we are told that God heard the voice of the boy and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not. Isn't God sweet? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. God intervenes here, doesn't he? God saves Ishmael, and he saves Hagar. God brings life out of death here. Ishmael had been mocking at the promised child of God, and God brings Ishmael from death to life. Isn't God amazing in his grace and amazing in his mercy? God shows up here on behalf of the ones who had been cast out. 
because that's the kind of God we have. He shows up on behalf of the outcast. God shows up here on behalf of the rejected. God shows up for Hagar and Ishmael who are not covenant people. God's grace is not restricted to Abraham and Abraham's lineage through Isaac. Well, in Genesis 22, in the next chapter, God also will intervene and save Abraham's other son, Isaac, from certain death. God brings Isaac from death to life, as we'll see next week. And then in verse 19 of our chapter this morning, God, what does he do here? Notice this, he opens Hagar's eyes so that Hagar sees a well of water. The well of water is the divinely provided rescue for Ishmael. Hagar fills the water skin and Ishmael drinks and Ishmael lives. In Genesis 22:13, next chapter, Abraham will lift his eyes to see God's rescue for Isaac. The rescue for Isaac will not be a water well, but rather it will be a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. The ram is killed instead of Isaac, and Isaac lives. And then the last thing to point out that's true for both Genesis 21 and for Genesis 22 is that Abraham acts, listen, he acts with regard to both Ishmael and Isaac because of his trust in God. Or another way to put it is that Abraham acts and obeys in these difficult ways with both Ishmael and Isaac because of the strength of what God had already promised him concerning both sons. Again, Abraham acts and obeys in these difficult ways with both Ishmael and Isaac because of the strength of what God had already promised him concerning both sons. He's acting on the promises of God. Abraham sends Ishmael out into the wilderness with Hagar on the strength of God's promise that through Ishmael, a great nation would arise. Genesis 21:13. And Abraham prepares to sacrifice Isaac in Genesis 22 on the strength of what God had already promised Abraham concerning his offspring in a place like Genesis 13, 16, where God had promised Abraham that Abraham's offspring would be as numerous as the dust of the earth. And that begins in Isaac. So Abraham acts, listen friends, he acts in difficult covenant commitment concerning Ishmael and then concerning Isaac out of his trust in God and his trust in the promises of God. And after all, hadn't God just shown Abraham amazing covenant faithfulness? And hadn't God just displayed to Abraham God's incredible covenant fidelity in birthing Isaac to him in his old age? God, I want you to listen, God can be trusted. It's too quiet. God 
can be trusted. Amen. Amen? There's not a lot of stuff in this world that we can trust in. Death and taxes, somebody said, right? God can be trusted. His promises come to pass 100% of the time. Based on the strength of God's promise, based on God's commitment to His covenant, we move forward. We obey. We keep covenant with Him. Well, the tail end of our second story in Genesis 21 is found there in verses 20 and 21. Listen to this. More sweet grace of God here. And God was with the boy, with Ishmael. Ishmael is now essentially fatherless out there in the wilderness. But God is father to the fatherless. God was with the boy, and Ishmael grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He's not the kind of guy you'd want to mess with. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him. Thanks, Mom. From the land of Egypt. Why? Because Hagar herself was Egyptian, right? And thus ends the second of our three stories right there. Now, before we trek into the third and final story in verses 22 through 34, I want us to just quickly review the first two stories. What have we seen here? Essentially, the first two stories are about the seed of Abraham, aren't they? The offspring of Abraham. God births Isaac to Abraham. Isaac is named in the text six times. Isaac is the chosen successor of the covenant. Isaac is the seed of the woman. Ishmael, Abraham's other son, is never named in this chapter. Ishmael is driven into the wilderness. The covenant does not come through him. And yet, God in grace promises good things for Ishmael. God brings Ishmael from death to life. God is with Ishmael as he grows up. So so the first two stories center on the offspring of Abraham which is one of the central issues in the covenant, isn't it? The offspring of Abraham. The third story now switches to, the folk, to, a, to a different focus, namely the focus on land, which is another major focus in the covenant. Let's go to verse 22. At that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Now, we first met Abimelech in Genesis chapter 20. Abimelech is an early Philistine king. In chapter 20, Abraham had tried to dupe Abimelech into thinking that Sarah was Abraham's sister. Now, Abimelech approaches Abraham, and Abimelech brings along his military muscle, this man named Phicol, commander of Abimelech's army. Probably Abimelech brings Phicol with him because he realizes the growing stature and prominence and power of Abraham in the land. Abimelech wants to forge a pact with Abraham in this passage. And the presence of the army commander, I think, may mean something like, Abraham, let's get this pact signed, sealed, and delivered, or there may be hostilities. 
I think that's kind of the idea here. Abimelech observes here, doesn't he, that God is with Abraham in all that Abraham does. There was something uncanny about Abraham. Abraham seemed to be blessed in every part of his life to all who would observe him. And there had been that matter, hadn't there been? There had been that matter of Abraham interceding for Abimelech in Genesis chapter 20, which resulted in Abimelech and all his people being healed. Abraham seemed to have the power of God about him. Verse 23, Abimelech continues. Long speech by Abimelech here. He says, Now therefore, swear to me here, by God, that you will not deal falsely with me, or with my descendants, or with my posterity, but as I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal with me and with the land where you have sojourned. Now, note the irony here, folks. The irony is that in one breath, Abimelech acknowledges that God is with Abraham, in verse 22, but in the next breath, Abimelech Abimelech says that he doesn't fully trust Abraham. Abimelech is worried that Abraham will deal falsely with him, probably because of Abraham's recent history of dealing falsely with Abimelech in Genesis 20. Well, at any rate, in verse 24, Abraham swears to Abimelech that there will be no false dealing, only kind dealing. Little short little speech from Abraham here. And then in verse 25, Abraham proceeds to talk about, notice, a little sticking point in the relationship between the two men. When Abraham reproved Abimelech, hey, Abimelech, you came to me, Let, let's talk about something here, Right? When when Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized, perhaps unlawfully, Abimelech said, I don't know who's done this thing. You didn't tell me, and I have not heard of it until today. What's Abraham doing here? He's asserting squatter's rights, essentially, to a well of water that he had dug out in Abimelech's jurisdiction. A well of water that Abimelech's men had come along and had seized and had now claimed as their own. Abimelech pleads ignorance here concerning the entire matter, which strikes us as a little odd. Is he blowing smoke or did he actually not know about this? We're not sure. Verse 27. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two men made a covenant. So Abraham now at the human level takes care of a covenant commitment with Abimelech, but Abraham, notice, adds a clause to the covenant in verse 28. Notice this. Gives these animals to Abimelech. Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock apart. Interesting. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What's the meaning of these seven ewe lambs that you have set apart? And Abraham replies, essentially, Well, Abimelech, these lambs signify an important additional clause to our covenant. In verse 30, Abraham says, These seven ewe lambs you will take from my hand, that this may be a witness for me that I dug this 
well. In other words, Abraham is saying, just so everybody is clear on this, this disputed well is mine. And when you take these seven ewe lambs, Abimelech, you are saying that you agree with me on that score, so that if there is any further hostilities with your men, you're going to take my side in the matter. That's kind of what Abraham is doing here. And then verse 31. Therefore that place was called Beersheba. What does Beersheba mean? It can either mean well of the seven, seven ewe lambs, or it can mean well of the oath. And it says in the text, the place was called Beersheba because there both of them swore an oath. Verse 32. So they made a covenant at Beersheba, Then Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines. So Abraham here has forged a mutually agreeable covenant pact, notice, with the nations, with the Philistines. Abraham is extending blessing to the nations here. Verse 33, Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba. Yesterday I planted some radishes in my garden, but no tamarisk tree. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of, notice, Yahweh El Olam. In English, Abraham called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. Verse 34, and Abraham sojourned. Notice the contrast between everlasting God and sojourning. Very different. Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. So in these last two verses of the chapter, notice here that Abraham plants a tree. What does the tree signify? The tree signifies his worship to God for the provision of water in the well and peace with Abimelech. And we notice here that as Abraham in this section has dug this well and has planted this tree... Abraham is putting down some roots here in the land, isn't he? He's becoming something of a fixture in the land. So Abraham in the first story of this chapter, we're going to wrap this up now, in the first story of this chapter was given his son Isaac. Abraham in story two saw God sort things out concerning Ishmael. And then in story three, God grants Abraham peace with Abimelech. And God ensures that Abraham now has a source of water in the land. This has all been God's doing. And so for all of that blessing, Abraham plants a tree in the worship to God, this God who has provided for him so lavishly, and he calls on Yahweh El Olam, Yahweh the everlasting God. Abraham, you and I may be temporary sojourners, In this land, God is the everlasting God, El Olam. The thread that ties the three stories of Genesis 21 together is the covenant commitment and grace and provision of God. I hope you saw that this morning. In in story one, God shows his fidelity and his faithfulness to his word by bringing Isaac. The God of Genesis 21... Our God is a God who can be relied upon to come through on promises that seem impossible to us. Amen? 
In story two, not only does Abraham show his covenant commitment to God by obeying God in the difficult matter of Ishmael, but God shows grace to Ishmael. And God provides for Ishmael. And God shows care toward Ishmael. Even as Ishmael is driven away from his father Abraham. Our God, as we said, is the God of the outcast. Our God is the God of the fatherless. Our God shows grace even to those who live outside of the covenant. Like Ishmael. And then in story three, God provides for Abraham as he gives Abraham peace with Abimelech and a supply of water in the land where Abraham sojourns. Our God cares for us, and he provides for us what is needed. Well, friends, if laughter was the response when God gave the baby Isaac to a couple who were in their 90s and 100s, Then I think joy and astonishment and thanksgiving and the highest praise should be our response when we learn that God visited the Virgin Mary and through her womb has brought to the world a Savior named Jesus who descends in the lineage of Abraham and Isaac God's long-prophesied impossible promise came true in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. The Messiah has come, and his name is Jesus. Jesus is the Word of God become flesh. Jesus is the supreme prophet. He is the highest priest, and he is the King of kings. Jesus is God incarnate. Jesus lived and taught and Jesus died on the cross as the atoning sacrifice for our sin. Jesus was resurrected to life after having died and Jesus ascended to the Father and Jesus will return one day to wrap up history as we know it. My questions as we end are are as follows. I want you to listen. And I want you to answer these only for yourself. Don't look around at anybody else. The questions are, what is your response to God's promised child, Jesus Christ? Do you laugh in joy and with faith and with thanksgiving over the Lord and Savior Jesus, trusting him? as God's Messiah sent to save you from your sin? Or are you rather like Ishmael, a person who mocks at God's promised one? Are you walking in covenant commitment with Jesus as your Lord, obeying his voice by the power of the Spirit, having been saved by his new covenant blood that was shed for you on his cross? Is Jesus Lord over your life and have you trusted in him as Savior? Do you trust his promises? Do you take his word as truth? Does all your life issue in the worship of Jesus Christ, the everlasting one, come in the flesh to rescue us from sin, death, and the devil? There is simply nothing more important for you than this, that you believe 
that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing that you have life in his name. There's nothing more important. I want to pray for you. Let's pray. Father, my prayer in childlike faith this morning is simply that you would save someone in the sound of my voice who does not yet know you, who has not received you as Lord and Savior and and, and has not followed you. I pray, Lord, that a new relationship with Jesus would be birthed, that if that would be your pleasure, that you would do it, Lord. And I pray, Lord, as we've listened to this word this morning and seen your covenant commitment and faithfulness to your people, that we would take that truth, that glorious truth, into our week this week and rest in it, trust your promises, look to you and depend on you for everything. I pray these things in Jesus' mighty and precious name. Amen. The benediction today is written by a brother named Richard Halverson. Wherever you go, God is sending you. Wherever you are, God has put you there. He has a purpose in your being there. Christ who indwells you has something he wants to do through you where you are. Believe this and go in his grace and love and power. Amen.